This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. So hot on the heels of the budget last week, we had the ongoing crisis in the banking sector. We've got a full update on that for you this week with Russ Mould. And joining me this week is Danny Hewson, who will be filling us in on all the news in stock markets, including more job cuts at Amazon and the next stage of the sale of Man United. Hello. Also, we've drafted in our pensions expert, Tom Selby, to come and explain the detail of all those budget pension changes from last week. We've got all the info on that boardroom spat at Scottish Mortgage. And Laura has a little update on why savings rates at NSNI might be about to improve. But first off, let's cover everything in that banking crisis. So lots of people will have seen some of the headlines. But Danny caught up with AJ Bell's investment director, Russ Mould, to explain what's actually happening in layman's terms and how it might impact you. Hi, Russ. Thanks for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to be here. Well, thanks to the magic of podcasts, we are recording this on Thursday morning after we recorded the rest of the pod that you're about to hear. But there was a really important reason for doing it this way, and that is because overnight we had the latest decision from the Federal Reserve and they delivered a smaller rate hike than had been anticipated just a couple of weeks ago. And that decision follows a couple of, well, really turbulent weeks with the banking sector. So I suppose, first off, Russ... The Fed has clearly been rattled by concern about the sector's stability. This concern has played into this decision. But if they hadn't hiked rates at all, which some market analysts were wondering, that might have suggested that they were even more concerned about the banking sector. It was a bit of a lose-lose situation for the Fed in some ways. And I've heard the, use, the word trilemma banded about in that the Fed has to <laughs> manage inflation on one hand, it's got a, and the economy and unemployment on the other, where it's actually you know got down to a sort of record low unemployment levels. It'll be happy with that, and then it has financial stability on the other side, which isn't part of its official remit, but it's it is a key U.S. regulator. There are accusations it's been slightly napping on the job, so there are it, it does have three things to worry about. What was interesting about Chair Powell's statement was that yes, they put rates up by a quarter percentage point to keep the hammer down on inflation, which is still running at three times their official target. But also he did say that they have the tools to combat inflation and at the same time maintain financial stability. And he pointed out to things like they're doing with the uh, federal deposit insurance scheme that they're supporting and also the um, the discount window where they're allowing banks to borrow against collateral, collateral not at its market price, which is where Silicon Valley Bank was forced to sell and get it, that helped get it into trouble, but actually at par. So that gives the banks an awful lot more breathing space. So they're saying basically, as far as financial stability is concerned, it's all fine. Nothing to see here. Move, Move along. along. Yeah. yeah. But we had markets rally in the immediate aftermath of the announcement of this rate hike quarter percent, but it was short lived because um, they got a look at the box plots and there had been anticipation that rate hikes might start to get cut later in the year. But now, although hikes are expected to slow and then taper off, we're not expecting cuts until next year. 
But again, the banking sector has played into the Fed's thinking because Jerome Powell has also warned that further banking stress could trigger a credit crunch because banks might be more reluctant to lend and that in itself could do some work in cooling the economy. So I guess although the Fed has said nothing to see here move along, how vulnerable is the banking sector really? Because markets have seemed to be growing in confidence, but maybe not so much now. No, I mean, I think that it's interesting, as you say, that the markets, I mean, the Fed moved up to 5% yesterday or on Wednesday. Markets had priced in 4.5% by December 23 and and 3.25% by December 24. So yes, they had priced in at rate cuts. And I think Mr. Powell distanced himself from that. And I think he will be aware that the banking turmoil will, as you've correctly said, mean that chief risk officers and senior loan officers are probably more reluctant to lend in certain areas. They may actually be less able to lend because if depositors keep on pulling money out of the regional banks and sticking them in the top tens, which would probably be a relatively logical thing to do. And certainly if you're a corporation, you know, you've got $10 million in the bank. <laughs> you know, you're probably going to think, why do I really want this in, you know, Bank of Punks or Tawny or something? I'm going to put it with JP Morgan Chase or or Bank of America or whatever. So you, you, pro- you so that so those regional banks' ability to lend will probably be constrained, let alone their willingness to do so. So I think I've heard, I mean, I've heard one estimate say that Silicon Valley Bank could take one to is the equivalent of you know one to one and a half percentage points of rate hikes because of the psychological effect and the knock-on effect of. On, on banks' deposits and ability to lend. So I think the Fed will be taking that on, on board and they will be proceeding gently, but they will not want to be seen to be soft on inflation, particularly having got inflation wrong when they said it was transitory and particularly when you know unemployment is, is at record lows and they know that that is what can lead to economies overheating once wage growth picks up. So they do have a tricky balancing act. Some of it they've brought upon themselves. Some of it, you know, they've clearly been tripped up by unexpected things like wars in Eastern Europe. And you were talking then about the guarantee for deposits, which obviously had been put in so that all guarantees from Silicon Valley Bank were protected. But we had banking stocks fall again in the US last night after comments from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen that the Biden administration is not looking at a blanket guarantee for all deposits. Um, And I suppose people's memories are incredibly long and 2008 wasn't that long ago, people are still worried that there might be another financial crash. Where do we go from here? No, I think those memories are are very long amongst depositors. I think they've probably been too short among some of the lenders, given some of the daft things that Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank and Credit Suisse have been doing. Well, actually, having said that, Credit Suisse actually came through the financial crisis pretty well. But clearly their memories... (laughs) didn't last that long at all because they went back to some fairly free and easy things that you know lessons that we should have learned 15 years ago but yes depositors have learned now in the UK we have an 85,000 pound deposit limit for so if you know, anybody is really frightened and I, I'm still not convinced there's any reason to believe there will be contagion you you can spread your money around across banks if you're in the blessed position of in the first place of having more than eighty five thousand pounds in in ready cash to hand which is which is a nice problem to have let's face it but you can spread your money around and, you know, the qualifying institutions, you can put your money about and they'll be each covered to £85,000. So that's one thing to bear in mind. The other thing to bear in mind is that the banks, the UK banks, are in a way better position than they were in 2007. They have way more capital. They have taken way less risk. So their capital has gone up 
and their risk has gone down. If you look at the assets on the balance sheet or the risk-weighted assets on the balance sheet, those figures have shrunk consistently and are miles below where they were 15 years ago. So they're in a much, much better position. And if you look, so there's before depositors are even vaguely at risk, they've got to burn through their equity. They've got to burn through their preferred shares, their AT1, <laughs> their additional T1 capital. They've got to burn through their subordinated debt, their senior debt at the operating company. Then they've got to burn through the subordinated debt and the senior debt at the holding company. That is hundreds of billions of pounds and dollars. So it really would take something even bigger than Lehman Brothers, and I stress even bigger than Lehman Brothers, for depositors to be at risk in the UK, unless the banks do something silly and cause depositors to lose their nerve. And the, it's not, a, and what in the end ultimately got Silicon Valley in trouble was deposits coming out. So, so long as banks keep their noses clean and say, look, look at where we are, we're well capitalized, are we taking less risk? And depositors keep their nerve, there shouldn't be a problem. Famous last words, of course. Yeah, because of course we've now got social media and yeah. it is so quick for someone to shout fire on social media and then everybody runs. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, at some of, there was an element of with Silicon Valley Bank, somebody was sat in a darkened cinema and shouted fire. And when you had entrepreneurs who had a lot of, a lot of money in one institution, so they hadn't managed their risks to a degree as, as well as perhaps they could have done, uh, that was what caused the run. And so, yeah, if somebody stands up and says fire with regard to a UK bank, we, we have to be very, very careful. Well, that's why the banks, I think, probably should be out there saying, look at how much more capital we've got. Look at how much less risk we've taken. This is why the situation is very different from what it was 15 years ago. Equally, if you look at the bank's balance sheets, there is a big line that says derivatives there, which you know on the asset and the liability side, in theory, they net off. That's the theory, right? Clearly, in practice, that might not always work to be the case. And I know that in the case of the US, because I've seen it, um, I think there are, I've seen the number from the Office of Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, and I think they say that nominal value of derivatives is $195 trillion, of which 80% is owned by four banks. So, you know, they're quite like, now the theory is, is that that's gross nominal, not mm -hmm. net, and net is levels you devils, no problem. But clearly, if one of the counterparties gets in trouble and there's a panic on, you don't know. And that's why, if you're wondering why stocks like uh, Barclays, are so much and standard chartered are so much cheaper than some of the others on a book value basis it's because they have a bigger exposure to deriv derivatives through their investment bank so there is that uncertainty opacity discount built into the valuations of the stock really briefly let's get nerdy because there's been an awful lot of talk of these at1 bonds <laughs> no, um, no, i thought i was being nerdy <laughs> enough talking about derivatives but okay <laughs> so an at1 bond an additional tier one bond to give them their full you want the full name yeah Contingent Convertible Capital, COCOs for short. yeah. Okay. And they are basically part of shareholder equity. So although they're a bond and you could argue that they're debt because they offer a coupon, they're technically equity, so they're closer to preferred shares. So I hope that helps a little bit. But what they're there to do is they're there to provide an extra capital buffer. So if something starts going wrong at a bank, they don't just have to start selling shares frantically and dilute down existing shareholders and probably make things worse. They have this buffer, which can be converted into shares pretty much at any time. So it's there as an extra level of protection. Now, because it's not quite, and because it's therefore very junior in the pecking order of seniority. So at the bottom, anything goes wrong, you have the shareholder. They get wiped out first, but they should know the risks. Should, I stress. Then you have the AT1s. And again, everybody should know the risks. That's why they offer a high coupon, 6, 9, 10%. Because if anything goes wrong, you get bailed in, you get wiped out. 
So you're taking a risk that money is used to protect the more senior levels of debt, subordinated and senior debt, either at OPCO, operating company, and then HoldCo, holding company, further up the list of creditors. So it's there designed to protect shareholders from dilution, provide a capital buffer, give extra protection to depositors, but you've got to be aware of the fact that it's still junior. And in the case of the Swiss with Credit Suisse, and I've read the document now, it's only 147 pages, but I found the relevant bit with the case of Credit Suisse, you were told explicitly under certain circumstances, you would be bailed in possibly even before the shareholder. So it's in the small print. So I know there's an awful lot of very angry people out there and there's going to be some very rich lawyers on the back of this. At the moment, the Swiss have simply applied Swiss law. Devil is always in the detail. Um, let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous, or maybe it's the other way around, because you were talking earlier about inflation and the fact that the Fed had got it wrong, because it certainly hasn't proved it to be transient. No, no, not at all. Um, as we're recording this on Thursday morning, just under an hour before the Bank of England's rate hike decision, which does seem pretty nailed on after we got a surprise uptick in inflation here in the UK in February, up from 10.1% to 10.4%. The MPC can't ignore that, can it? They can't. Though Again, they're, they're in a difficult position, having made a mess of it with their transitory call. I guess the question is, to what degree they, they will be asking themselves, I would assume, to what degree does raising interest rates help with energy prices? Not at all. Help with gas prices? Not at all. Help with the price of imported salad? Not at all. You know, I've just been on a conference call with a fund manager who said, well, they're using a, a hammer to squash a cucumber because that's where the price inflation is coming from to, it, to, to some degree. And so to what degree does the Bank of England making people's mortgages more expensive help them with their salad bills? No. So that's a, that's a difficulty for the, for the bank to consider. Equally, the bank will be looking at the fact that wage growth is running at 6.5%. We are where two-thirds of our GDP comes from services. And those lucky people who are getting that 6.5% or indeed more if you're in the private sector, with the public sector still lagging that figure, the Bank of England will be thinking, well, that's going to start feeding into tickets, meals, and then people come back for more wage increases. And then the vicious circle turns around again. So that's what they'll be worrying about is that core inflation at 6%, which excludes food and energy, is still pretty sticky. So yes, I think they will be raising rates because it's natural, it's humanly natural. You get something wrong on one decision, you tend to overcompensate on the other. And I suspect that's probably what they'll end up doing. Equally, inflation does in itself cool the crimp consumers' ability to spend. They have to spend more on life's essentials. That will cool the economy in itself. I think higher, and again, don't forget, they started raising rates, what, 15 months ago now. It takes 18 to 24 months for monetary policy to have an effect. We haven't really started to feel the hit from it yet. So I would think, you know, in a year to 18 months time, there's a good chance they'll be cutting interest rates. I'm not convinced by the OBR's optimistic forecast that we'll dodge a recession this year, if the truth be told. Thanks, Russ. Always a pleasure. Next time. Look forward to it. And in true podcast style, I've just nipped back on. It's just gone 12 o'clock and the Bank of England has indeed raised rates by a quarter of a percent to 4.25%. That is the 11th rate hike on the bounce, last higher in October 2008. And Laura and Dan will be here next week and they'll take you through all the nitty gritty and any of the fallout associated with that. 
So banking industry aside, let's look at what else happened in markets this week. It feels like every week we talk about a new raft of job cuts. And this week it is Amazon's turn again. I know, again. And Amazon is the second of the big tech companies after Meta to announce a second round of job cuts. It said this week that 9,000 more jobs would go. Um, That follows the 18,000 announced in January. So CEO Andy Jassy said in a memo to staff on Monday that some people might be wondering why they didn't announce the additional role reductions with the ones that were announced a couple of months ago. And he said the short answer is, Not all of the teams were done with their analysis in the late fall. So this time, the job cuts are going to come in more profitable areas for the company, including cloud computing unit, that's AWS, and also the advertising section as well. Uh, And as I say, it, it comes just a week after Meta also announced additional job cuts. And what was really interesting about this announcement is that Investors normally, when they hear about job cuts, they say, okay, well, that's the sign of a company which is getting to grips with cost, it's protecting profits, and you see shares go up. But actually, shares went down this time. And although the share price is up almost 20% since the start of this year, you know, it comes off the back of last year where they plunged 50%. And we also saw a number of other of those big tech names seeing share prices fall off the back of this news. As a lot of people wonder exactly how many more job cuts are going to come out of this sector. Talking of job cuts, we also had an announcement from the food delivery firm Just Eat. They've announced they're planning to cut almost 2,000 jobs in the UK. So that's 1,700 driver jobs and around 200 operational roles. Now, We know that Just Eat have been having a really tricky time. Um, They've seen a slump in customer numbers. Of course, you know, first of all, you've got an option now not just to order a takeaway. You can go out to a pub and a restaurant, but you've also got the situation where people are thinking about how much they spend because of the cost of living crisis. Now, these job cuts are actually really interesting because what they've decided to do is to get rid of their employees so their employed couriers. And they'd made quite a song and dance of the fact that they thought that having employees gave them more benefits, more workplace protection, um, and said that um, the gig economy model came at the expense of society and workers themselves. However, they have now gone backwards. So the delivery drivers will now be contractors who don't enjoy those kind of perks. Now, the firm has said that using workers rather than self-employed people in the UK put it at a competitive disadvantage against rivals like Deliveroo and Uber. And also this week, we've got the next stage of the bids for Man United. What's the update there? I'm going to caveat this with I'm going to have no input on this section because I know nothing about football. But at least I knew that Man United was a football team. So that is a good start, I think. Well, I um, started my career working at Newcastle and you just couldn't not know anything about football when you lived in Newcastle. It it just wasn't allowed. So I know a bit, but I know more about the deal in the offing. So we're recording this Wednesday lunchtime and the deadline for the second revised bids for the club is nine o'clock tonight. And at that point, 
they're saying that they have to be bids of more than £5 billion, which is a huge amount. Now, the Glazers, the current owners, have said that they've got a price tag on the club of between £5 and £6 billion. Now, it's important to note that any more than three and three quarter billion pounds would break the world record fee for a sports club sale, which was set when the Denver Broncos were sold last summer. Uh, American football team. My brother loves American football. So what we know is that there have been a number of interested parties and we're expecting at least five bids, possibly as many as eight before close of play at 9pm tonight, UK times. Now, not all of those bids are to buy the club outright. Some are talking about just a minority stake, but some of the big name involved are, um, and I apologise if my pronunciation is off here, but Sheikh Jassam bin Hamas Altani, and also Sir Jim Radcliffe, who, of course, is the boss of Ineos. So they are the leading contenders. And we know that um, a number of delegations have been looking around the club. And in fact, Jim Radcliffe went in person and spent six hours looking around the club on Friday. But the Wall Street Journal has reported that um, he has said that he won't pay a stupid price for the club. Um, uh, he also said that uh, his interest would be in winning things, and he called the club a community asset. So it's going to be very interesting to see exactly what happens over the coming days. Of course, you know, there are some Manchester United fans who will just be delighted, whatever happens, to draw an end to what has been quite a controversial period for the current owners. But, I mean, the price tag, Laura, £5 billion. I mean, Manchester United, you know, as a brand is huge. I think at £5 billion, it puts me out of the running, unfortunately. (laughs) I know you're interested. my bid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's also been a bad week for Richard Branson, hasn't it, as news of potential insolvency at one of his companies emerged? Yeah, I mean, it was looking really tricky for Virgin Orbit. Um, News emerged last week that it was pausing all operations. And then we had reports from Sky News saying it was drawing up insolvency plans in case a bid to secure extra funding didn't come off. Now, remember that, um, you know, it was only in January when they had this failed satellite launch in Cornwall. There was huge razzmatazz. Everyone was very excited because it was the start of, you know, UK satellite launches. Uh, and it it didn't go well. Um, So off the news of that, we saw shares absolutely plummet, but that was then, this is now, and this is Wednesday, and shares are up a whopping 155% in pre-market trading. And that is because Virgin Orbit this morning has put out a statement saying it is about to resume incrementally operations from tomorrow. So Virgin Orbit has put out a statement saying we are looking forward to getting back to our mission and returning to orbit. Um, We do know that it is on the cusp of getting a deal to attract $200 million worth of cash from a Texas-based venture capital investor called Matthew Brown. That's via a private share placement. So this potentially could be incredibly good news for, you know, the UK plans to try and launch these satellites. Um, 
we do know that uh, what happened, they've said, was um, it was because of a fuel filter that became dislodged during a flight. Um, they say that they have now got to a point where potentially they can go forward with things. So as of today, things are looking an awful lot brighter for Virgin Orbit than they had been just a few days ago. So we do know, Laura, that a FTSE 100 company has also hit the news this week, and that is Investment Trust Scottish Mortgage with a very public boardroom spat. Yeah, we usually think of the investment trust space as being quite sleepy, quiet places, but not the case this week. So there's been this very public boardroom spat that has meant that Fiona McBain, who is chair of Scottish Mortgage, one of the few kind of household name funds out there, she is now stepping down. Now, the board say this is part of kind of longer succession planning that's been in place for a while, but it comes after non-executive director on the board, Amar Baid, who has now left the board, um, Um, left the board and then immediately went to the Financial Times with lots of comments about how the trust is being run um, and also personally about Fiona McBain, the chair. Um, He said that the fund managers don't have the capabilities and the governance clout to monitor the the illiquid investments in the portfolio. He also claimed that there's been a long series of procedural violations that were brushed aside at Scottish Mortgage, levelling a lot of that criticism at the chair herself. It's obviously very unusual for a director to leave in such a public and outspoken way. And even the way in which he left has been subject to a lot of headlines. He was asked to resign and he refused to resign, saying that instead he wanted the board to strip him of his role rather than him resigning. So all of this has obviously caught the headlines a lot. If we look at those unlisted investments that he was particularly critical of, at the moment, so as of end of February, which is the latest update we have, the trust had 29.9% of its portfolio in 52 different private investments. Um, So it's only just below the 30% limit that it sets on unlisted investments. Um, And so it's right up against that limit, which potentially is why he's more concerned about those unlisting investments because they're making up such a larger proportion of the fund. For example, they were only at 19% in September 2021. And broker Stiefel has come out off the back of this. Lots of brokers have put out kind of research notes opining on some of the problems and and what's led to this. Um, Its suggestion is that Scottish Mortgage should appoint a specific different manager to run the unlisted portion of the fund. Um, Whether that will be taken on board, we don't know. But what we do know is that investors in Scottish Mortgage will have been hit by this. And so their shares have fallen by roughly a third over the past year. Obviously, that's not directly proportionate just to this spat. That's also markets kind of turning against the style of the trust. Um, But the shares are now at an almost 20% discount, which is huge when we think about Scottish mortgage a few years back, always trading at a premium because everyone wanted to buy the shares. Um, It's still got that good long-term track record. So over the past 10 years, the trust has produced Produced a net asset value return of 421%, which in comparison to the FTSE All World Index return of 183%, shows just how amazingly it's done. But of course, a lot of those returns were made off the back of the tech boom and low interest rate environments. 
the environment is very different now and that's what the trust has been struggling with. Um, so I think all eyes are on, firstly, how this boardroom saga is resolved. For now, Senior Independent Director Justin Dowley is succeeding uh, Fiona McBain as chair. Um, but obviously there's a lot of reputation damage that's been done by this and also a lot of questions raised about how much substance there is in these claims. Yeah, it's a hugely popular investment trust, Scottish Mortgage, full of household names and, of course, a number of them have really struggled over the last year or so. Now, we gave you all the initial budget news in last week's podcast, but we all know that a lot of the detail takes a few days to emerge. So once all the experts have had a chance to go through the nitty gritty of budget documents and work out all of the implications, AJ Bell's pensions expert Tom Selby has been doing just that with those big pension changes we spoke about last week. So Tom, first briefly for anyone who hasn't listened last week, run through those three big pension changes announced in the budget. Yeah, thanks, Laura. So as you say, a big budget for for pensions for various reasons. So we'll start from the top. So first, the annual allowance. So that's the limit that's placed on how much you can contribute to a pension each year while receiving pensions tax relief. That's gone up from £40,000 at the moment to £60,000. So that new higher limit is going to kick in from 6th of April in 2023. So this year, um, the the minimum level of the tapered annual allowance, which affects very high earners, that's going up as well. So that's going up from £4,000 to £10,000. And in addition, the adjusted earnings measure used to decide when that taper kicks in is also going to go up by £20,000. So it's £240,000 at the moment. It's going to go up to £260,000 at the start of the tax year. Now, the third change, um, another annual allowance change relates to the money purchase annual allowance, something that we've talked about a few times before. So that's the, the annual allowance that affects those who flexibly access their retirement pot post age 55. So that's usually either by taking taxable income in drawdown or taking an ad hoc lump sum. So that money purchase annual allowance is going up as well. So more good news going up from £4,000 to £10,000. And then the big one and the one that's been taking up most of my time in the past six days or so, the lifetime allowance. So from 6th of April this year, again, the lifetime allowance charge will reduce to 0%. So if you have an excess above the current lifetime allowance of just over a million pounds, then if you wait until after the 6th of April, then that lifetime allowance charge will go to 0%. It can be up to 55% at the moment. And the government's out its intention to abolish the lifetime allowance altogether. Now, alongside that reform, crucially, the government has said that the maximum tax-free cash that someone can take under these new rules will remain at a quarter of the current lifetime allowance. So that's just over £268,000. So a a lot for people to, to chew through and various implications for different people as well. So the lifetime allowance charge is going to 0% from 6th of April with the intention for it to be abolished. So is there anything people need to think about before then? Yes. So clearly the extent to which that is going to affect people will depend on the size of their pension pots. But those with an immediate decision to make are likely to fall mainly into two camps. So first, you'll have those who have already used up their 
lifetime allowance or who would breach their lifetime allowance by crystallizing their pension before the 6th of April. So when we say crystallizing, it just means things like taking your tax-free cash, going into drawdown or buying annuity, various other events that count as crystallizing. When you crystallize your pension, HMRC tests if how much lifetime allowance you've used. If you've used more than your entire lifetime allowance, then you'll be subject to a lifetime allowance tax charge. Um, there'll also be an immediate decision for those who have a form of what no, what's known as protection in place. So a number of these protections were introduced since 2006, and they usually entitle people to uh, a higher lifetime allowance and sometimes higher tax-free cash as well. So particularly important. So for the first group of people, so for those who could breach their lifetime allowance by crystallizing, so things like ta- taking tax-free cash, going into drawdown or buying an annuity. If you can, it makes sense to hold off making that decision until the 6th of April when the lifetime allowance charge goes down to 0%. For those people who hold a form of protection, again, if you can avoid doing anything which might breach the terms of that protection, such as making a contribution, a pension contribution before the 6th of April, then you should avoid doing that. Because if you do anything before the 6th of April, there's a chance you'll be hit with a lifetime allowance tax charge, which could be as much as 55%. If you wait until 6th of April onwards, there'll be no tax charge to pay. Also, crucially, for those who have a form of protection, the government has said that If you make a contribution after the 6th of April and you have a higher tax-free cash entitlement than the current level of £268,000, quid, you'll be able to retain that higher tax-free cash entitlement and continue making contributions as well. So quite a a generous allowance there from from the government. I don't think something that most people were necessarily expecting. One other thing to note from this, and there are always, of course, complexities and cliff edges and things like that. A a lifetime allowance test is applied in two circumstances where people will have no control over that event. So one would be if you died before age 75, then a lifetime allowance test would happen. And the other would be if you reach your 75th birthday. Now, if either of those things happens before the 6th of April 2023 and that lifetime allowance test means you go above your lifetime allowance, you have an excess and potentially pay a charge, then the current rules will unfortunately apply. So it's possible that there'll be people who fall into one of those two camps who are just caught between where we are now and the new system coming in who through no fault of their own, will be subject to a lifetime allowance charge, but there's not going to be any allowances made for for those people in that unfortunate position. Pretty frustrating for those people and definitely get in touch if you are in that camp. It's probably also worth saying that a lot of this stuff is quite complicated and so for some people it might be best to seek financial advice to help lead them through that process. But um, Labour have been quite critical of these plans, talking about how they want to reverse them so is there anything people can do to prepare for future changes because I'm conscious we do have a general election looming and so what Labour says maybe carries slightly more weight than it would usually. 
Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. So in, in the wake of the budget, one of the, the most common questions I've, I've had from journalists trying to kind of unpick some of these changes and the implications for people is how can people prepare for the actions of a government that doesn't exist yet and a prime minister that doesn't exist yet and a set of policies that doesn't exist yet. And I think that's, that's one of the challenges that anyone's saving for retirement faces is this constant uncertainty. So as you say, Labour have said that they're going to go against this set of policies. They say they want something to be introduced that's more specific for the NHS schemes to make sure that doctors aren't being forced out of the workforce. And what we don't know is what that will therefore mean for people in the private sector. So for example, will Labour look to reintroduce a version of the lifetime allowance? Will they look to do something else in order to try and claw that tax back? Or is this all just political posturing? And actually, when they come into power, will they just decide, actually, it's not really worth the fight and we'll just leave it as it is because actually removing the lifetime allowance creates lots of simplification and it does solve, help to solve that that problem with the NHS scheme as well. Um, my, my general rule around this is to deal with the, the tax rules that you know and the tax rules that you see there's far too much uncertainty in politics and in the you know the, the politics the politics of the parties involved we don't even know if Labour will win the general election as I say if Labour win the general election we don't know how they would try to introduce the effect of this lifetime allowance so r- rather than letting the the political tail wag the dog, I'd suggest people just focus on their longer term strategy, focus on the tax rules as they see them, make the most of those tax rules where you can, but try not to get too distracted by by political posturing, because frankly, nobody really knows what's going to happen between now and a general election and beyond that general election either. And I know, Tom, that you've written an Ask Tom article in Shares magazine, so people can dig that out if they've got any further questions. And, of course, they can always get a question to you. Um, You can get us, podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And, Laura, you spotted another little detail in the budget that might improve things for savers. Yeah, there were two interesting things um, relating to NSNI that happened last week. One was in the budget, the government increased the target that it wants NSNI to raise, so the amount of money that it wants NSNI to raise. Um, the second thing that happened was um, the government back provider released its latest update to its report and accounts, which painted a pretty bleak picture of how the savings market is going for NSNI at the moment amid the kind of savings war that we're seeing with interest rates. So the government has said that um, currently it wants NSNI to raise $6 billion. It's increased that to $7.5 billion. Feels like quite you know, a technical data thing. But essentially what it means is NSNI is going to have to make its products more attractive to draw in more of Sabre's money. So what that means is higher interest rates. Um, And that has a kind of double effect because firstly, you can get better rates with NSNI. They'll probably end up boosting their premium bond prize fund as well, which we know lots of people are big fans of. But that will also have a knock-on effect on other savings providers because if NSNI ups its rates, then lots of the other savings providers will also increase their rates and it will help to kind of 
fuel that savings war, which we saw a lot of um, last year and has kind of died down a little bit this year. Um, but the report and accounts also showed that NSNI is really struggling to keep hold of savers' money. So this savings war that we saw in markets means that savers have got much savvier about moving their money around to get better rates. And that kind of makes sense when we think about rates being a difference between 0.1% and 0.2%. That's not really enough to get savers excited. But if we're talking about a difference between, you know, money sitting in your current account earning 0.1% or you being able to earn 3% in an easy access account, that's worth savers kind of taking the time to move their accounts um, and move their money around to get better rates. And that's really hit NSNI. And so its outflows um, in the most recent period represent 99% of its inflows. So we're seeing lots of savers move their money out of the government-backed provider elsewhere to get better rates. And so while it's still attracting some inflows, it's losing a load of saver money at the moment. And all of this really just adds up to higher interest rates, which is really great news for savers. Yeah, completely different landscape for savers than it has been. Um, that is all we've got time for this week. On next week's podcast, we've got Go Henry founder Louise Hill talking about how we can all boost financial education in children. Don't forget to leave us a review, to subscribe to this podcast wherever you have accessed it. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.